Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Well, um, I, I will open by saying Happy Memorial Day. Um, later on in the service, um, we will be doing something special for, uh, to remember those who have fallen serving uh, the nation and giving us the freedoms that we enjoy. Just uh, wanted to let you know that. Um, looking forward to it. Um, we're going to continue in the series that we've been doing in James. Um, I think last week I managed to do a chapter and a half, so we're back on track for about a chapter per week. And we're going to go into James 4 today. Uh, James 4, verse 1, starts with, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, he's going to give the answer, but if we don't continue and we say, well, what is it? You know, what, what causes fights and quarrels? Our first thought is, well, the other guy. That's what caused it. He did, she did, they did. They caused it. But he says this, don't they come from your desires that battle within you. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. He says, we fight because we're trying to get something that we want or feel we should have whether that's an object or that's someone's respect or that's, you know, to be just how they perceive me, how they treat me, what they, like, we desire. He says that you fight for that, and then he says you do not have because you do not ask. The things, I think he's talking about there, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. Now, how many of you guys remember when I talked about the two kinds of asking in the Bible? Ooh, I have to repeat this. So, it's important to desire the right things and then to ask for them. He says, it's your desires. Well, Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So it is a biblical prayer to ask that God give you desires. I've shared before how when I was a kid, I wanted to go be a missionary. Well, kids want all kinds of things. They want to stay up. They don't get to. They want to eat sugar all the time. They don't get to. When you're a kid, what you want and what you get aren't necessarily the same. But as you mature, that starts to change. And if you remain focused on what you Desire, it will become what you get. If you, what, and, and I remember as a kid growing up and thinking, okay, I'm getting to the point where what I want is going to steer what I do and is going to steer what becomes and, and saying, God, did, is this desire from you? Because if it is, I want to pursue it. If it's not, well, tell me, give me another one. But we can desire, we can pray, God, give me the desire. Now, that verse said, we have not because we ask not. And I've, I've read this verse before, and by the raising of hands, I think I'm going to read it again. John 16, 23 says, and in that day you will ask 
mean nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And I've explained to you before that at first, it sounds like you're not going to ask, but you're going to ask, and it's a little confusing. But what we realize is that in the original language, there are two different words that are translated ask. And I've, I've described how that can be different because the, the, the Eskimo, the Inuit actually, they have multiple words for snow, whereas we have one. We say there's snow falling and there's snow on the ground. They have a different word for snow falling than they do for snow on the ground. So an Eskimo might look outside and say, there was snow, but now there's no snow, but there's snow. When we translate it, what they're saying is, there was snow, the snow in the air, but now there's no snow in the air, there's snow on the ground, right? But they have different words for that. In Greek, there are different words for ask. And this is, in that scripture we're gonna read, it says, in that day you will ask, and that word means to request a favor. Mean nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask, this is a different word. And it's the kind of word that denotes um, requesting or demanding what is owed, requesting what's entitled. When I go to the bank and I ask for $100 from the teller, is that the same kind of ask as if I was to go to Nick here and ask for $100 from his wallet? No. I'm requesting a favor from him because I have no, no right to that money. But when I go to the bank, I'm requesting what I have an entitlement to, what's already mine. So the two asks, he says, in that day you will ask me no favors. Most assuredly, I say to you that whatever you ask, understanding it's, that it's owed, the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked, understanding that it's owed, nothing in my name, but ask understanding that it's owed and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now let's, we've, we've talked about that before, so I'm not gonna belabor that point very much, but I'm gonna go back to James four. When he said, you ask, you do not have because you do not ask God. Which ask is it? That's the do not ask understanding it's owed. He says, you don't have because you don't ask understanding that you're entitled to those promises. But then he says, when you ask, same thing, that owed, you do not receive. So there is a way, simply asking, understanding that it's owed, there is a caveat there. He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. When we, when we ask, we're asking not, so some people, if you talk about faith, they get this idea that faith is just wishful thinking. If I just believe for a Ferrari, I'll get one. I can just imagine anything that I want and I can ask it. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 19, it says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. So I don't have a Bible promise that says God will give me a Ferrari, but I have a promise that says he will meet all my needs according to his riches and glory. 
So I can't, in good faith, pray demanding the Ferrari that's owed me. Why? Because God never promised me a Ferrari. But what did God promise me? He promised me that he would meet all my needs according to his riches and glory. There are so many promises. He, he says, do you, do you ask to fulfill what God has described to you as his plan for you, or do you ask for your own selfish desires? We've talked about praying so that, so that God's will be done, so that things can be accomplished. God says, align your requests with my promises and with my will, and you will receive. Faith doesn't just believe anything you bury becomes a tree. Faith knows that God's word contains in it, his promises contain in it all the power needed to fulfill themselves. If I hold an acorn here and I say, you know what, I believe I can plant this and an oak tree will come, how many of you would agree? If I stood up here with a, with, do I have any change in my pocket? Well, if I just stood up here with a key, so I'm gonna bury a key and I'm expecting an oak tree, what would you? What? Faith, some people confuse faith and think faith buries keys expecting oak trees. No, faith buries God's promises expecting his power to fulfill those promises. Do we see the oak tree? No, but we believe that it's coming because we recognize that something was planted there that contains the power to fulfill and become that's what it said it would be. Jesus, God has given us so many powers. Look at, this is what Jeremiah 1.12 says. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. God watches his words and his promises with the intent to fulfill them. We, and he says, you don't have what I promised you because you didn't ask understanding that it's yours for what I promised you. You don't have it. And then you get all bent out of shape about what you don't have and you get in fights over it. You get cranky, you get nasty, you get in quarrels because you, you think it's their fault you don't have what I promised you. How many of you realize it's not your boss's fault? Oh, yes, it is. No, it's not. God can provide for your needs, not according to your boss's whims, but according to his riches and glory. I have, and if you can throw up those slides with promises, I have a list of New Testament promises. These are things that are promised us in Scripture. We're promised salvation, uh, the earth is inheritance, the, the second coming, material blessings, eternal life, his divine presence, salvation, uh, power to bind and loose, reaping what is sown. All of these things, there's three more slides like this. If you want a copy, I put some at the information desk. You can get this. But here's the thing. If I don't know what his promises are, how can I stand 
confidently on them. I need to know what God has promised me so that I can be, like I can stand in faith and ask. I need to know his will. I need to know his promises. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, but where does hearing come from? The word of God. Why? Because that's where his promises are at. It's not just hearing anything. Not hearing the Ferrari ad. No, it's hearing his promises so that I can put my confidence in his promises. All right. Verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Now, we don't use the word adulterous all that often, but basically he says, hey, you people who are like someone who's sleeping around, Hey, you people who are unfaithfully going behind the relationship you're supposed to be in and getting involved with something else. Don't you realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Well, you knew it. The pastor was going to tell you you couldn't have any more friends. That's not what it means. Jesus was accused of being friends with sinners. Do you remember that? He went to the house of sinners. He ate at the, the tax collector's home. And, and the Pharisees were all bent out of shape that he would even talk to, to people who were prostitutes and, and who were swindlers. And it wasn't that he could not be friendly to those people who were in the world. It was that he says, when he says being friends with the world, what he's talking about is Embracing the culture of the world at the cost of God. Like adultery. Instead of being with God, you're with the world. It doesn't mean you reject people. It means you're embracing the world's culture what would be examples? Relativism. What's right for me might not be right for you, and what's right for you might not be right for me. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. And when the culture says that's the standard you should put on it, and you're like, well, but I don't know. It, everybody else is looking at it that way. I mean, there's a lot of things that the Bible agrees with, and the church agrees, or the, the world agrees with, we agree. Murder. Thou shalt not murder. Not many people argue about that one, unless they're not born yet. And if you say, hey, I recognize that what the Bible says, but, but culture says, and I want to align myself with culture. Realize, someone, I, I heard this said recently, and it really rung true. The debate is not when does life begin. It really isn't. If we found one living cell on the moon, we would be celebrating that life was there. Okay? We know scientifically science establishes there is life. The question isn't when does life begin. The question is when does life have value.
The, the real question isn't, is it alive? The real question is, does it require that I value it yet? Am I required to value it yet? And God says, and we talked about this the other week, God says that the value comes in whose image we were made. Moving on. So abortion being an example of something where we have to choose. Do I take what scripture has given me or do I follow the culture? Lying, do I follow what the culture says is acceptable? Do I look at scripture? Cohabitation, outside of marriage, do I follow what the scripture tells me or do I embrace what the culture says is the norm? Homosexuality, do I follow what Jesus said or do I look at scripture for what it says? Friendship with the world, what they're talking about is when you replace God's design culture standard with the world's. You're cheating on God with the world's culture and, his, and the world's values. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You can't have two opposing cultural like the worldviews and value systems. Moving on. James chapter four, verse seven. Submit, just a second. I thought I missed something. I did. I didn't read verse five yet. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. What does it mean to be proud? To be proud is to value your perception over anything else. I think I'm all that in a bag of chips. Doesn't matter what you think. I think I'm right, no matter what anybody else says. I. We've talked about what that looked like for, for Moses. Moses thought that his lowly view of himself was more accurate than God's. When God came and said, I want you to go talk to Pharaoh and deliver the people, he's like, my opinion of what I can't do is more important than your opinion of what I can do. Again, he's valuing his opinion over God's. When we cheat on God with the value of the world, what we're doing is we're valuing our assessment of right, wrong, what's valuable and what's not over his. And what is that? That's pride. That's saying, I can do a better job of choosing and figuring this out than you can. You may have made the world, you may have designed humanity, you may have done all of that, but I think that this is gonna work out better for me if I do it my way. This is the way that other people around me are doing it. It's pride. And God says that he opposes 
the proud. Not just like, do you realize what a big phrase that is to be opposed by God? You know, there are things we can do that, that automatically bring favor and God's support. And then there are things we can do that, that bring his opposition. Pride brings his opposition. The Bible says that when we tithe, he will rebuke the devourer. So I can give, and the Bible says he backs me up. Or I can choose to value my opinion over his, choose to cheat on his values and embrace the culture of the world, and the Bible says that he will oppose the proud. But then he gives grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is like when it just, you, you get the job and you don't know why. God's grace was on you. It was un, unmerited. You can't figure it out. But he gave grace to you. Why? Because you were humble. Does humble mean self-deprecating? No, it doesn't. It means understanding, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. It doesn't, doesn't, that verse doesn't say, don't think anything high good of yourself. Some people have that idea. Well, humility means just recognizing that I'm scum, that I'm a worm, that, you know, I think there's, there's, there's an old hymn that's like, oh, what a worm am I? That is not a theologically accurate hymn. There are a lot of really good theologically accurate hymns. That isn't one of them. Why? Because God said, think of yourself, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. We are his children made in his image. Amen. And we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Okay, now it's verse seven. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. First it says, Submit yourself to God. The word submit. What? Sometimes we get a, a skewed view of that. If I submit myself to God, who submitted? Did God submit me or did I submit? I submitted. See, submission is something we choose, not that we're forced. If, if it was forced on me, that isn't an act of submission, is it? No, I was forced. And I can be resisting or submitting. If I submit, then I choose to put myself under him says, submit yourself to God. And I'm going to say, say this again. When the Bible talks about husbands and wives submitting 
one to another, that's not telling a spouse to make them submit. No, that's saying mutually give to the other. That's not, you don't, you don't make someone submit. Someone chooses to submit. Submission is something we give, not something that is to be taken. We give to the Lord. And by the way, in the Old Testament, so I'm just gonna go off on this tangent just for a second, then I'll be right back. Imagine, imagine, most of us have an understanding of what the world was like during slavery when, when because of the color of their skin, a group of people were considered to be of less value. Imagine at that point in time when they're, they're not considered to have autonomy. Imagine if Jesus got up and said, submit one to each other, black and white. You have control over their body, they have control over yours. If, if, if in that time when there was a total disparity, what would be the shocker there? Would anybody be surprised that the, the white folks had any kind of power? No, the, the surprise revelation is that the power should be equal, right? You'd be like, whoa, he's saying that they have more power. That's what was happening in the Bible when they were talking about men and women. At that time, women couldn't vote. They couldn't, you know, they, they were not fully autonomous as men in that culture. And Jesus in the Bible got up and said, hey, you're equal. He has control over you and you have control over him. Then people take that and go, well, he has control over her. <laughs> that wasn't the shocking surprise. The culture already considered that to be a norm. The shock was that the, that the Bible said it went both ways. Didn't say dominate, doesn't say husbands dominate your wives. No, it doesn't. It says wives submit to your husbands. That's not something the husband does, is it? No. Then it talks about equality. The shocker wasn't that he had any authority, the shocker was she has the same authority. And that you guys are to mutually submit. All right, sidebar over. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I love what somebody said. When was the last time the devil fleed from you? And the answer is the last time you resisted him. If you don't resist, he'll come right in. He'll come right in. Greater, the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have authority. So much of Christian life has to do with exercising the authority that God has already given us. You know, even, even in our legal system, if a police officer shows up at your home, he can't force his way in unless he has a warrant. How many of you know that? However, you can invite him in. If you let him in, 
Guess what? He's got a right to be there. Why? Because he's a policeman? Actually, no. Because you let him in. Now, I'm not advocating an adversarial relationship with the police at all, but I'm pointing out that the power to enter didn't come from him. It came from you letting him in. So many ways, that's the way it is with us and the devil. He shows up knocking, and he's hoping that we don't bother to resist. If we say, get out, we have the authority, he has to flee. But if we're like, oh, it's you again. Oh, I was kind of hoping you weren't going to show up, but I guess now that you're here, would you like a coffee? He comes in. Where did the authority to be there come from? Your coffee invite. Oh, I was hoping this wouldn't happen, but I guess. Oh, there's, there's layoffs coming. It's probably going to be me. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When I think of this verse, I immediately think of the back roads in northern Michigan. How many of you have ever pulled out to pass another vehicle? Everybody? How many of you have done that and then realized there's another car coming? And you're trying to calculate how much time you have. Like you get out in some of these big open spaces, you might be able to see almost a mile out in front of you. I'm thinking of a section of road right now in northern Michigan where you can see like way out there. So you've got this car in front of you that's going 54. And you're like, I want to pass. And there's this car way out there doing, who knows, 60? And so you pull out and you try to pass the car that's going 54 by going 55, 56, 57, 50, you know, like you're getting up there. You are like slowly going past this car. You are right next to that car. That other car, it's way out there. But here's the thing. When you're doing 60 on your way towards him and that car is doing 60 on the way towards you, that's the equivalent of doing 120 towards each other. Have you ever noticed how quickly that gap closes? <laughs> oh, it's way out there. Well, I've got time. Do I got time? I got time. I got time. Suddenly you're doing, oh. You've got to push that down. Why? Because when you draw, and that's how I picture that verse. The Bible says, hey, if you accelerate towards me, I will accelerate towards you. That closes the gap. We, don't, we have a God who desires relationship with us. He says, you are controlling the speed at which we come together. But it's not just you accelerating. Every time you accelerate towards me, I accelerate towards you. I hope this hasn't happened to you, but have you ever felt like the car coming at you was also accelerating? <laughs> Let's hope that they're not, right? But that's what it's like with God. He says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. 
The more that I pursue God, the more that God accelerates and pursues me and approaches me. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord that he may lift you up. Humbling yourself recognizing that it isn't your opinion that matters most. It's his. It's not your values that matter most. It's his. It's not the world's values that matter most. It's his. He says, you double-minded, grieve and more. He says, change your thinking. Switch from what was following the world to the other. Then it says in verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge another neighbor? We talked about this earlier. This says, verse 11 says, anyone who speaks against a brother. That's the type of judgment it's talking about here. We talked about there there is a level of discernment when you need to choose. Bad company corrupts good moral. Is this good company or is this bad company? If it's bad company, I need to react accordingly. But that's not the same as speaking against a brother. Newsflash, every negative thing you see, you don't have to talk about. (gasps) I call it the 2020 syndrome. How many remember 2020? 2020 was this like show, and I don't remember what time. I feel like it might have been like a weekly show on Saturday or Sunday night. And and they always did exposés. So 2020 would go find an apparently, you know, well-respected person or company or organization or whatever, and they would go in there and they would catch him at doing something stupid. And then they would put it on TV for us to watch. (laughs) And it was like, guess what? You know, this prominent politician, this, you know, seemingly upstanding business, this, whatever, you know, did you know that really, you know, they're not paying their their employees overtime or they're not doing this or they're, you know, this person has, and their value as an organization came from their ability to find fault in others and highlight it. And I feel like many of us Like, we grew up seeing that, and we thought, well, that's cool. Maybe maybe I can do that. And then we turn that attitude right on our brothers and sisters in the church. And we think that we deserve a Pulitzer every time we point out an expose. We're like this personal little expose reporter going around. Guess what? Did you know what happened? That upstanding person over there, they look like they're upstanding, but really, as if there's value 
in going around and finding other people's fault and shining lights on it. That is not a scriptural value. The world may value that. God doesn't. God doesn't. I, I, usually I try to foresee the various scriptures that are going to pop into my mind and I look them up and I find them and I have them ready. But there's a, there's a case in the scripture when one of God's angels is being talked to about the devil and he won't even trash the devil. Just says, not my place. It's not our place to trash others, to speak negatively about them. That is not our place. Is it, is it potentially true? Could be. You remember the story of David? The king was trying to attack him, trying to kill him. David had the opportunity to do him harm. And he said, far be it from me to raise my hand against God's anointed. God's anointed was trying to kill you. You could, you had all the reason in the world to trash him. His, his people said, look, it must be that God wants you to kill him because look, he's come to the opening of the very cave that we're hiding in. He doesn't know that we're here. And he's come into the cave unguarded. You can go kill him. You have the perfect opportunity. No. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We need a spirit of discernment. We need to recognize good fruit from bad fruit. And that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is clarified in verse 10 when it's, or 11 when it says anyone who speaks against a brother. When we see dirt in the lives of the people around us, let's take Joseph, for example. Joseph was a godly man who found Mary, a seemingly godly woman. Then one day, I don't know, she told him, it started to show, whatever. He discovers, we have never done anything, and she is pregnant. Talk about an expose. But this is what the Bible says. It says, Joseph, being a righteous man, had it in his heart to put her away quietly. According to the laws there, he could have shouted it from the rooftop. He could have called for her stoning if he had wanted to. But it, the Bible says that because of his righteousness, before he understood the situation, this is before the angel came to him and said, by the way, yeah, you didn't do anything and neither did she. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the virgin birth. This is a once in a, a not a once in a lifetime, once ever situation you need to take her as your bride. Before that happened, when he really had no good reason to think other than, you know what, she's been unfaithful. He still, because of his righteous behavior, wasn't going to make a scene. 
Why? Because that is the righteous response. When you see someone do something that is dirt, it's not your job to shine the light on it, point it out, be the 2020 reporter. You know what? In his case, he he was righteous. He was going to respond accordingly, but he was going to quietly put her away. And then he got visited by the angel and the story turned out great. But we're still learning from that situation. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, the, live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. He says, you're out of line when you... Make all your plans basically apart from God. He says, when you don't factor in God's involvement, you're out of line. I think of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.29. He says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my power and for the glory of my majesty? How many noticed the my, my, I? It says, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what you decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live in the wild, like wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Lord Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to whomever he pleases. You see, we need to recognize that God is a part of of every plan that we're making. We are blessed because of God. The nation that we're in is because of God. I, I don't believe that I have to put, if God wills, at the end of every sentence I say, referring to the future, to avoid sin. No, that's not the point. It's not about a legalism. It's about a mindset of recognizing that I didn't do this all by myself and any plans that I have aren't just my plans. God, as we read earlier, has given me these desires and he also gives me the wisdom to fulfill those desires and those plans that I'm making, I'm making for his glory. And should I succeed at these plans, then he succeeded in me and through me. There it it ended saying that if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
a lot of times we think of sin as like a list of do nots. We don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't embezzle, don't lust, don't, you know, we got all these don'ts. But God says it's about when you reject the right you know you're supposed to do, that too is sin. The Pharisees were, were loophole finders. And Jesus said to them, he said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Because Moses said, you must honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their mother or father is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, Corbin, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and do. You do many things like that. What were they doing? They... The commandment was that you provide for your parents. But they found a loophole and said, hey, if the money you were going to use on your parents you give to the church, well, then you don't have to take care of your parents and you can just let them out there. And he says, in many ways, you know what the right thing is to do and you find an excuse and a way to do something else and then you act like it's all okay. He says, no. No. No, when you know what the right thing is to do and you choose not to do it, that's sin, period. It doesn't matter how you sugarcoat it. Perfect timing. All right. Um, as I close today, do we have anybody here who served in the, serv- the, the armed forces at all? Well, there you are. Yeah, you, I was. I didn't see you, so I came up. Um, I just want to pray um, a blessing for those family. Anybody have family who may have passed that served? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the people who paid such great sacrifice for us. Lord, we thank you for the privileges, the rights that we have. Lord, we thank you for the influence that you have in the the writing and, and the way that our government is structured. Lord, we just pray um, that you would continue to bless this nation. Lord, we ask forgiveness for the crimes that we have a nation, as a nation have committed. Lord, and we pray that you would raise up godly leaders um, throughout this country at every single level. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. Amen. Adrian. <laughs>